My loves, I don't know if you're like me or many of my friends or the, a lot of the people that I know, but listen, do you have a cabinet in your kitchen that's packed with supplements and all these amazing things? They're all there to support your overall health, to boost your gut, to boost your vitality, but you ended up being like too overwhelmed to even like look at it and create a routine with them that you're like just ended up skipping taking your supplements. I've been there too, honey. And this is why I want to take a moment to share an incredible discovery with you, my darling. It's called AG1. And let me tell you, it's been a game changer for me. And how I noticed that it was a big game changer for me was when me and my dad were, do were, we were doing that grief walk from uh, friends through Spain. And I got to tell you, the food was delicious, but it wasn't the best for my gut. But how I kept the gut going, how I kept boosting my vitality throughout the walk was every morning I would put a pack, a packet of the AG1 into a water bottle and I would shake it up and I would drink it. Even my dad, who's always like, here, dad, here, this is good for you. He's like, no, thanks. And granted, you know, the homie's got, you know, he's doing really well um, health-wise. And, but he's always like, nope. But with this, with AG1, he was like, okay, give me some. And he would take it. And it's, there is, it's, it's amazing when you take something, uh, you know, with routine and you start to see the results. It's like, okay, fine. I found my thing. Especially because it's just one serving that has the most straightforward way and simplest way for you to get your vitamins and your nutrients and your minerals and your prebiotics and probiotics. And honestly, why take a bunch of different things when you can just get um, all of it in, in one scoop of this delicious magic AG1 powder? into a glass of water or into the beautiful uh, water bottle that you get. This is how I start my days, honey. And honestly, if you're a traveler, they also uh, will send you, you could also get the AG1 travel packs and they're amazing. And, and every time I have a friend that comes over to the house, I'm always like, here, take a couple of these and try it out for yourself, you know? And I want to share an amazing, exclusive, delicious offer with you today. If you want to take ownership of your health, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com backslash sa. So that's drinkag1number1.com backslash sa. Um, you got that. And if you don't go to the show notes, it's there. And cheers to your health and your vitality. Hey, my love, listen real quick. I hope you're enjoying the podcast as much as we love creating it for you. And if you find value in what we're doing and you want to show some appreciation, we have two simple ways for you to contribute. The first one is by buying us a coffee. It's a one-time donation that goes a long way in helping us cover production costs, equipment upgrades, and other podcast-related expenses. Every cup of coffee makes a significant impact in our ability to keep delivering the quality content that you love. The second option is for you to become a monthly supporter by buying us a coffee on a reoccurring basis. By setting up a monthly donation, you become an integral part of our podcast sustainability. And we get to continue to create the content you love with confidence, knowing that we have a reliable source of funding coming in. 
And we love you for that. Listen, head over to the show notes and click the link there or go to buymeacoffee.com backslash spiritually sassy show. Again, that's buymeacoffee.com backslash spiritually sassy show. And I just want to say thank you so much to all of you who have already been buying us a coffee. We love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Your generosity is so wonderful. And we're incredibly grateful for your support. What's up, Darlene? Where have you been? I've missed you. Listen, welcome back to the podcast, The Spiritually Sassy Show, where we are redefining what it means to be spiritual in the modern world. I'm your host, Sadie Simone, and it's an honor and a joy that you are here and that we get to spend, excuse me, the next hour together. There was a little burp coming. Listen, today's guest, my darling, is the legend, Sean Korn. If you haven't heard of her, darling, well, you know, this is what we do here too. We introduce you to people that you perhaps don't know, but I think most of you have heard of her. She is someone that I've wanted to talk to, to have a deep dive, a heart-to-heart conversation, like a friendly deep dive. And it happens to have happened on the record, darling. So lucky for you and lucky for me. That conversation is recorded and it's here for you now. Sean Korn is an internationally acclaimed yoga teacher, author, and public speaker who has been at the forefront of yoga activism and community service for over 30 years. She's won humanitarian awards by some fancy companies. She has founded, co-founded two different organizations. I mean, this woman has done a lot with her life. Let that be inspirational for us. And she's done all of it with great love. Don't think about the greatness of the impact as like jealousy and envy and I want to do that like that. No, let this be an inspiration for doing life with great love. Great love. Not the need to do great things, but the need to do great to do things, simple things with great love. Okay. Anyways, why am I talking so much? This is only the introduction. Sa, stay in your lane. You get into this podcast. I love you. I have been looking up to this woman for a very long time. If you have done any serious yoga practice outside of the gym yoga, my darling, no shame in the game. Do your gym yoga. Do whatever you need to do to get free. But if you have been serious about yoga in the United States, you have heard this name. Sean Korn is in the house with us today, my darling. Welcome. Thank you so much. You know what? My first uh, public gig was teaching in a gym back in the 90s. Uh, on 3rd Street, there was a gym there, and uh, I taught that class every single day, and I loved it. I, I cut my teeth in that class. And so you're right, there is no shame in that game. 100. And there's also the next stage of practice, which, which is very much of what you bring. I think you, I think, no, I know you really live the eight limbs of yoga 
which says asanas one, but I mm-hmm. think a lot of people get caught up in the asana practice and perfect posture and, and perfect alignment when there is so many nuanced aspects of the inner world happening that the practice are there to help us. Yeah. Speak yeah. to but that I'll, for us. But I'll, I'll, I'll tell you though, saw that the first years of my practice, I started practicing when I was fairly young, around 18. And it was purely physical. It was only asana. Um, I had no depth. I had a lot of trauma. I was doing drugs. Um, my experience of yoga was really limited and it just felt good. I just did yoga. It felt good. I competed with myself. I liked watching myself get more flexible. I liked throwing my mat next to the most advanced person in the room and competing with them. It was a very physical practice. And that lasted for, uh, I would say about five, six years. Um, and during that time, slowly, I stopped drinking, I stopped doing drugs, I stopped smoking cigarettes, I stopped eating meat. One th- it wasn't like a big decision, it just it didn't feel good on my body. And then one day in a yoga class, a phenomenon happened where the teacher was going on and on about love, truth, forgiveness. I don't even remember specifically what it was. But I had a strong physical reaction and all this energy just dumped out of my body and I started to shake. I had to leave the room, sobbed, couldn't stop sobbing and came back into the yoga room and suddenly heard the teacher in a completely different way. It was terrifying and and uplifting at the same time. And it wasn't that the teacher was saying anything different. It's just that after eight years or so, my body finally released the accumulated tension that had been part of my survival mechanism for so long. It had just chipped away at it with each class until that one moment where my nervous system was ready to embrace the emotions that was core to the tension. So I don't look back at those eight years of just purely physical asana, Uh, competitiveness, all ego. I don't look at that as bad at all. It was an essential part of my body's um, titration, my body's acclimation of the deeper work that was to come. And so I always say that to anybody. It's like I wasn't like born into uh, yoga where, you know, I, you know, the, the skies open and the angels came down and I was immediately transported. It wasn't like that for me. Uh, After that moment, that experience that just rocked me, I got very tender with my practice. I started to feel my body very differently. And eventually that's what led to the other aspects of yoga that became equally as important, but it definitely wasn't like that in the beginning. That's really good to name. You know, sometimes I get really sassy about it because I see so much of this like performative yoga on social media with these like, you know, really, really um, elaborate postures where they've become westernized. And I see these really elaborate postures. And I also see in the meditation space, these like perfect postures and these like, you know, complex mudras and, and you know, all that stuff. And I have a major eye roll on it because <laughs> when you come to sit in a monastery for 30 days and you're meditating for seven to 11 hours a day, the posture sinks, yeah. you know, 
it's really the inner working that's taking place. And I don't have perfect alignment. And I go to hot yoga three to four times a week. And I, I'm not there for the perfect alignment. I'm there to change my relationship to discomfort. Yeah. I'm there to, to rest in presence when I want to run. I'm there to mm-hmm. be in a fire and see if I can still be cool. You know, so I, I, that's the all, the, all the side of it. I think, my darling, you're a gifted fucking teacher, honey. You've got this different <laughs> karma, okay? Hear what the legend is saying, but take what I'm saying into consideration as well, okay? okay because she okay. can enable you to keep doing the alignment and think you're getting free, which is, there's truth mm-hmm. to it as well. And yeah. if you're not breathing, if you're not present, mm-hmm. it's, you know, I, it's a choreography, not liberation. That's my mm-hmm. view. I'll right. stick to it, honey. <laughs> you can go ahead and do that. And, you know, we're not far off. It's just, uh, I approach yoga from a, a trauma lens. And again, I didn't do that from the beginning. It, I didn't even know I had trauma. It wasn't until I started understanding the phenomenon of the mind-body connection. And, and even to your point though, like I can look at the Instagram images and I roll as well. Um, but I also imagine that if Instagram existed back in the 80s, 90s when I was doing yoga, you better fucking believe that I would have been the first one, you know, <laughs> rocking a pose on at that rock. And so I guess I look upon some folks with kinder eyes, especially if they're younger, because I keep thinking, just keep showing up, keep doing it, get on that rock, do what you got to do, because one day the yoga is going to hit you when you're ready. And you're going to suddenly look back at all the attachments at the ego of the reason why they needed to balance on that rock, why the need for external validation, where that lack of self-appreciation came from. And that to me is the yoga. So I try to be very compassionate when I see things that, again, internally, I eye roll, but I always imagine all of the teachers, my teachers, back when I was younger, back when vinyasa flow and power yoga were just becoming like the thing in the 90s in LA. It was a scene, and I was a part of that scene. And I often think of the teachers, my teachers, like Mati uh, Azrati or Chuck Miller or Patricia Walden or Lisa Walford, you name it, you know, sitting around the ta- a table. I imagine them sitting around the table and they're drinking their chai and they're saying, what are these kids doing? What the hell is this? This is not yoga. They're playing music. The temperature is up. They're dancing in the middle of the class. They're linking all these poses together. It's just athletics. That's not yoga. And cut to vinyasa flow and power yoga becoming the styles of yoga that really helped to mainstream and revolutionize the practice of yoga in our world by allowing or making it accessible to people who wouldn't normally walk into a yoga room, including the athletes. And then, just like me, they spent you know extra push-ups, they did all the things, until suddenly the yoga grabbed their heart. And it, it took maybe two months, maybe 10 years, but eventually it takes. So I imagine myself, me and Shiva and Brian Kest and Steve Ross and all these other teachers who were popular, you know, who, who helped to breathe life into that, into that mainstream um, yoga, sitting around a table today and we're drinking our chai and we're saying, what's that <laughs> saw doing? He's just dancing. And, and, and um, Jonah Kest and Andrew Seeley, what are these? That's not yoga. And so I try not to be that fuddy-duddy and recognize that to me, 
yoga is, uh, yoga to me is an art. Art is the creative expression of an individual. What might be art or creativity to me is not going to be art or creativity to you. So the moment I come in based on my age, my experience, my color, my religion, my sexuality, my gender, all of these influence what my creativity, my art looks like. So if I come in and I'm like, saw, what you're doing is bullshit. Here's how you need to be doing yoga. Here's what you need to do. All I'm doing is imposing my art on you as an absolute. That means there's no room for you to explore, discover, unpack, make mistakes, decide like, oh, that color doesn't work. Or that color is great, but if I only add this color, it becomes something even more magical. Like I want to always hold the magic of yoga and its evolutionary process in my heart. So when I'm mentoring younger teachers or younger students coming up, I'm not so rigid in my belief system based on what worked for me that I'm open to the evolutionary process. The end result is I want people happy. I want people to connect with the highest aspect of who they are. I want them to let go of the blame, of the shame, of the fear, of the guilt, of the, of the unresolved grief and experience their, their authentic truth and that sense of oneness and interdependency that does exist when you get out of your own way. And how that happens for someone and, the, and when that happens for someone to me is between each soul and the God of their own understanding. And ultimately it's none of my business. So all I can do is I'm going to share what worked for me, add it to your, your, your uh, palette of colors, use what you like, the rest throw away. But if I'm in judgment, then the, that says more about me than it does about that person. And then I need to get back to the mat. So I'm, I'm often cautious. I know that yoga is continuing to evolve and my hope is I can be the older voice of support and, and, um, appreciation that can allow for that change. And at the same time, support people in understanding the roots of yoga, the traditions of yoga, where this all comes from and let that be the foundation from which they fly. Mm. Throw that mic across the room, honey. <laughs> Thank you. That was stunning. Perfection. Gorgeous. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sipping the tea hot for us. <laughs> let's, let's dive into Revolution of the Soul, yeah. your book. You write, my first lessons in spirituality and yoga had nothing to do with a mat, but everything to do with waking up. They included angels, seeing God, and being in heaven, but believe me, not the way you might think. <laughs> Break this down for us. Dive deep into all this because it's so like, yes, please, Shonkorn saw God. Do tell. <laughs> this takes me back to my very first introduction into yoga, which was back in the you know late 80s. First, I worked at a night I worked at a restaurant called Life Cafe on Avenue B and 10th Street. And it was owned by David Life and, J and uh, Sharon Gannon, who went on to open Jiva Mukti Yoga. Eddie Stern was a delivery boy there. He went on to open the Ashtanga Institute Wait, in New York. Wait, Eddie Stern was a delivery boy there? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This goes way, way back. This is, a, this is, I, we started working there in 1984. So, you know, I was a little I tiny baby. I wasn't even born yet. Yeah. Oh my God. I was a little baby corn and so was Eddie. He was a little baby also. 
and uh, he rode a red bike with a big red like basket on the front and would deliver food in the neighborhood. But they were doing a lot of yoga, and that's where I was first introduced to the practice of yoga. I didn't start practicing yet, though, but I was aware of what yoga was, and it was very much a part of the conversation in the restaurant. But Heaven was a nightclub that I worked at, at during the same time. It was an all-male gay sex club and uh, in, a, in a very famous club called Limelight, which uh, I hope you've heard about. Uh, Absolutely, uh, honey. So uh, Heaven was upstairs in the rectory, and it was a private club, and it hosted um, all-male gay sex parties. And I was the only cisgender female that worked there. I worked behind the bar, and I was privy to a lot of stuff, to, you know, to say the least. I got quite an education, and I loved it. It was actually probably the safest job someone like myself could have because the boys there were completely not interested in me sexually, but adored me, adored how I looked, what I wore, and were, I, I just felt very safe and very um, included. And my nature was always very, very curious ever since I was young. Um, but I was always more of a voyeur than a participator. Like, it was no surprise. I worked in 11 famous, very famous nightclubs back in the 80s, early 90s. But I always worked behind the door or behind the ropes, either as a door person or as a uh, bartender, because there was always something protecting me from what was out there. You know, the wildness in the bathrooms, the wildness of, in the club itself. I could see it all, and I could viscerally experience it, but I always kept myself slightly removed from it, which I, is a good and, a, and not a bad thing, but it was, you know, it, it was ultimately a good thing. Uh, kept me out of a lot of trouble. But I was very curious about life. And in heaven, as I write about in my book, I meet a very significant man in my life by the name of Billy, um, an African-American man who came out late in his life as, as being gay and as a result lost his family, lost aspect. Uh, uh, contact with his children, his grandchildren. He was really ostracized. And this was also at the height of the AIDS um, epidemic, um, where there was still a lot of confusion around AIDS. Um, and Billy had been coming into the club. He had some issue with my drug use, but for the most part, you know, we just talked and connected. And uh, one day he didn't come in. Uh, then that one day turned into three weeks. And it was odd. He was there all the time. And then when he finally did return, he came across the bar to me and I went to hug him. And I noticed before I hugged him, all these sores, open sores on his neck. So I recoiled and I knew even before he told me what was going on. And I asked him what, was, what that was. And he said they were symptomatic of his disease. And I said, what disease? And he said, I had AIDS, that he had AIDS. And... Um, that was the first person I had known with AIDS, and I was still young enough to be ignorant, and I recoiled. Like, I physically pulled back from him when I heard the word, and I still will never forget the sadness that went over his face when I did it, and he asked me if I wanted to learn more about his disease, and I said, of course. And he shared with me everything, um, and at the end of our conversation, and I'm paraphrasing this because it's a very long story and you can read it in the, in yeah. the, in the book, but I want to get to the heart of it. Um, I asked him if he was afraid because I asked him what was going to happen and he said he was going to die because at that time, of course, there was, n n there were no treatments, there were no, uh, 
cure. There's no cure today, but, um, but then it was very critical. So he told me he was going to die, and I asked him if he was scared, and he said no. And I said, why? And he said, because of his faith in God. Now, at that time, I'm an atheist, and I am a committed atheist. I had no spiritual connection whatsoever, and there were reasons for that based on my trauma and my upbringing. I was, uh, uh, I was raised an agnostic in both a Jewish and Catholic family, um, but I, at that point, heels dug in. No God. So when he said, because of his faith in God, I recoiled for the second time. But this time, Billy laughs, and he asked me why I didn't believe in God. And I explained it to him, and he nodded. And then he said to me, do you want to see God right now? And so I look around the club and I said, sure, you show me God here. He points to Danny the Wonder Pony. Danny the Wonder Pony was this white guy that used to dress up in naked, except for a saddle and a pair of chaps. And for $1, you can climb on his back. He would trot around the dance floor and you can hit him with a switch. So he points to Danny the Wonder Pony and he said, God's right there. And then he points to this woman, trans woman named Violet. Now, at the time, we wouldn't have called her a trans woman. We would have called her a cross-dresser at best. Um, and he, uh, Billy points over to uh, Violet, and Violet looked like my, like wore like a gray wig and a veil and like a house coat and sensible shoes and carried a purse. And when Violet would tip me, she would tip me with a, one of those silver dollars, like old-fashioned silver dollars, just like my grandmother would give me as gifts. And uh, Billy points to Violet and said, God's right there. And then Billy points to these two guys in, the, in a, a booth over a pitcher of beer. You know, they're wearing suits and ties, probably came down from Wall Street. Um, they look as straight and as conservative as either one of my brothers. And uh, Billy points to them and says, God's right there. And then he picks up my hand and he puts it on his heart. He takes his hand and he puts it across my chest. And he says, God's right here. And then he says, Sean, I'm going to tell you something right now. And I hope you remember this for the whole of your life. Mm. He says, ignore the story and see the soul. And remember to love. You will never regret it. Those words became the introduction into my understanding of God. Billy then points around the room and says, every single person here has a story. You don't know where anyone has come through, what their karma is, what their lessons are to learn. And he said, quite frankly, it's none of your business. That's between them and the God of their understanding. This is where I learned that. And he said, and again, I paraphrase this, but essentially everyone is doing the best they can with what little they know based on their trauma and the lack of tools that they have um, uh, for awareness, for transcendence. And he said, so out my, he said, you, my job is to like all the things that they're doing externally, it's just a story. It's not who they are. And I need to remember to love no matter what. And my own story is not who I am. It's an aspect of my journey but it doesn't define the totality of my soul. And so Billy's introduction to me was to help me to understand that God is in the light and it is in the shadow. It is in the sex and it is in the, um, it's in the repression, that it's in every single moment. It is all divine. And it's really our perception that influences our own reality. But this is when I first started to recognize, as Billy said to me, that God is truth and love. 
and that love lives within and it lives within all. Access that truth, access that love, and you will know God. And I didn't miss the, the, the fact that I learned about this in a converted church in a nightclub called Heaven by a gay man with AIDS who I look at as one of my greatest spiritual teachers. He helped me to know that you know, I saw spirituality as being like this holier-than-thou thing that happened in temples and churches and mosques. And I felt anything but holy. I was a dirty, scruffy kid who liked drugs and liked sex and liked all the dark things on life. Even though I stood on the other side of the bar, I wanted to know about all of it. I didn't think I was worthy of God's love and didn't realize that I couldn't be worthy of God's love until I loved all of me wholly and completely and recognized that that thing that I was seeking really was something I needed to awaken to and it was already within me. To me, that's what grace is. So mm. that's the story of Billy and that's the, my introduction to spirituality and to God. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people quote you on that story, like across many different, yeah. you know, pods of people, That's that nice. story that I was like hoping you would tell, you told <laughs> that exact yeah. story comes up. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Sean Porn met God in a nightclub in New York City. Yeah, yeah that's how I hear it. Yeah, 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 yeah which I love. Yeah. Listen, you brought something up that I just want to dive in a little bit with my, with my work, you know, with bedside care to patients at the hospital and seeing Christians uh, praying to God and Muslims and, and, and Jews um, and a variety of different other faiths that have their own divinities and deities. I want to hear your perspective. I know I'm putting you on a spot, but how often do you have an opportunity to be in a room with a legend like you who's lived full life, who has, you know, changed the lives of so countless people you've met, you know, you've, you've had an experience with the divine in multiple ways. Um, I sometimes have been having a hard time praying And not that I have a hard time praying in other tradition. Even as a Buddhist, I don't, I don't have a problem at all. I love stretching my capacity. I love, you know, saying, may the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse you and heal you. It feels a little intense, but I'm like, yes, if that's what it takes, let's go to that place. And I do have, um, and I can notice myself feeling emotional as I'm saying, I do have this this challenge with the paradox of, of being human and praying to a divinity that has the willpower technically to see you through into a miracle and to see you through into your death. Um, so I, I just want to, am I making any sense with what yeah, I'm offering sure, right now? Sure. You know, so I just want to hear your perspective in that because it's, it's really heartbreaking to, you know, I remember there was, so many people praying for my mother to get well. There was people in the Himalayas, in the Indian side, in the Nepali side. There was my entire social media community. God knows how many people were actually praying that at least they said they were. Um, and I had my close friends sending me videos that they were doing all these like elaborate rituals and, and she died. You know, mm -hmm. she's still fully dead. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I just want to hear your perspective on that. And, and again, it's not that I have... 
it's not that I have a fixed view. I'm, I'm always, I always love to be educated and stretched and, and to dive deeper into the mystery of this unknown. But mm -hmm. you speak about God, you know, so eloquently, and there's so much strength in those words when they come out of your mouth that I would love to just hear you speak to that. You brought sure. grace and you brought God together. That's the <laughs> yeah. dance that I want us to go into. You got it. My loves, let's take a quick break from the episode because I got to share something with you that is delicious, mind-blowing, and, and kind of really sweet of a surprise for me. Backstory, which probably all of you know um, by now, I have struggled with acne scars um, for as long as I can remember. And I say struggle as in I've always wanted to not have them, you know? And of course, cystic acne is gone, which is wonderful, but the scars are there and they're deep and they are, um, they're, they're always like, good morning, Sa, how are you, darling? Nice to see you again. And I have spent so much money trying to get rid of these scars. I have, you know, literally gotten, I mean, I, it's pointless to mention, I have done pretty much all the things available under the sun to be able to change the the texture of my skin to be able to say goodbye to the acne scars for me for me because for you if you think i don't look cute with my acne scars uh it is a reflection of the quality of your mind uh, okay let's just put that into perspective for a second so anyways i get sent i get sent a lot of products all the time people that want to participate in podcasts, people that want me to talk about their products. And I'm extremely fierce about the brands and the products that I talk about because I have to be a trustworthy source for my community, my students. And so anyways, I have, uh, I have found, no, this product found me and I'm so glad it did. It's called One Skin. And the product's necessarily not built for acne scars. It's built for a variety of other different benefits, uh, which I don't need them right now, or I don't think I will need them because I'm fine um, with the way my skin is aging. However, if you're interested in transforming your aging process in a way that is healthier looking or more relaxed looking or whatever it may be for you. The point is, I want to share with you this product founded by four female PhD level longevity scientists with over 15 years of experience studying the biology of aging. The product that I'm holding in my hand right now is called One Skin OS One Face. I wash my face and I put this on and I put sunscreen on and that is all. And in one week, honeys, I swear to you, it is wild. The, comp the, the complexity, no, the texture of my skin is changing so much. I'm like, this can't be true, you know, because I always dream of a product like this. But hey, now it is here, you know. And unlike most skincare products on the market, one skin works deeper than the surface level. And it's designed to promote healthier skin from the inside out. And check this out. In an independent 12-week clinical study, OS One Face, which is the product that I'm holding in my hand, the product that I'm talking about, demonstrated uh, efficacy by strengthening the skin's barrier and significantly reducing visible signs of aging. 
In the study, they were able to have these epic results. Wrinkles were diminished in 87% of users. And 95.5% of the people who were in this, in this study in this clinical trial experienced improved firmness. One skin is for everyone that wants to prevent or reverse the signs of aging with groundbreaking approach. One skin addresses skin health at the molecular level, targeting the root cause of aging so skin behaves, feels, and appears younger. It's time for you to get to experience a new skin health routine. And I'm offering you, as a listener of the podcast, a 15% discount when you use cold capital S-A-H, my first name, you should know by now, at oneskin.co. That's 15% off at oneskin.co with code S-A-H. And it's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O. And the code is capital S-A-H. And enjoy, my darling, because we only have one body, one skin, and only you can choose to make it better age healthy with one skin my loves i don't want to take too much time away from the episode so just a quick break to give you some delicious information and something that's really exciting me listen we have launched the somatic activated healing membership and the benefits that the members are sharing with us is so delicious they're saying it's reduced depression and anxiety reduced physical pain and sluggishness i can't even say that word increased a sense of resilience increased joy and inspiration hey we love that improved physical health and energy levels improved mental health and clarity and it's deepened their connection to authenticity and self-expression so all this a dream come true because i've always wanted to be able to have a sacred school meet temple meets dance floor so all of this coming together that's what the somatic activated healing membership is all about it's helping us Take responsibility for what we're carrying and time to say goodbye to the emotional baggage and time to say hello, open heart. Because, you know, the body keeps the score, as we've heard this. The body holds the imprints of our past experiences. And unless you have the tools and the time to process your painful experiences as they happen, it leaves an emotional residue alive in your body, which then turns your body into inflammation, then turns your mind into chaos, therefore closes your heart. Listen, and I've gone through this experience of carrying emotional baggage, a massive heavy load for so much of my life that it was like making my body, I mean, the symptoms were wild, chest pains, cystic acne, gut issues, depression, anxiety, addiction, suicidal radiation, you name it. All of these things were symptoms of unprocessed emotional baggage. So in the Somatic Activated Healing Membership, you have access to a multitude of practices, including the ultimate mind-body spiritual workout, which is what you're seeing me in the doing that that looks like a, a, a sort of a regular dance practice, but there's an entire mathematical process happening behind, which I can't wait for you to experience it for yourself. In the membership, you also have access to um, guided meditations, master classes, spiritual talks, courses, and live Dharma workshops with me once a month. 
maybe I forgot to say this, but there is somatic activated healing method practices every single day live with teachers from all over the world, honey. And these are epic teachers who I have certified myself. So I fully trust them to deliver this message, to deliver this method. What we also have in the membership is a community page where you get to engage with other members. And we also have weekly inspirational prompts to get you going. So with the whole thing, this entire, you know, uh, uh, dance floor meets temple meets sacred school, the combination of all this together will give you the support to have a robust and foundational spiritual practice that will, that could literally radically change your life. And you've heard the members, what they're saying, that it's working. So take it from what they're saying, honey. In any case, I love you very much. I hope you keep enjoying the podcast and we're giving you a seven-day free trial to the membership. So get in there. The link is in the show notes. And um, I hope I get to see you on the dance floor. Big love to you. Peace. You brought grace and you brought God together. That's the dance <laughs> yeah. that I want us to go into. You got it. You know, it took me a long time to get comfortable with prayer also. Because having been raised in an environment where there was, again, Jewish, Catholic, um, and to me, it, but not nurtured in it, like uh, it was always on the periphery. But when I would go to school, which was mostly on the Catholic Christian side, God was always very punishing. God was always showing up when you messed up. And I messed up all the time. And I had a lot of superstition related to God. I, uh, based on my, my, my childhood trauma, developed obsessive compulsive disorder as a way to create control in my body. I was obsessed with the numbers fours and eights and how to do things in patterns um, to create control. And, that, and I felt like if I didn't do these things, God was going to take away someone I loved um, or someone I loved was going to get sick. And so I was a real worrier and I had a lot of anxiety um, and always felt that there was this all-knowing presence that somehow loomed large just waiting for me to fuck up. So my commitment to know God, you can see it was finally, I was like, enough. This is, this is in my head and I'm not going to indulge this. So for me, it, like, I didn't get comfortable embracing this idea that there was a God. Now, God to me is not external. It doesn't exist out here. It's in here and it's defined as truth and love. And so I believe that the magic, the power that we have, we have in full totality. And what blocks us from the, 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 the depths of our spirit is fear and conditioning and some scars and biases, prejudice, uh, culture, ancestry. And we're just spending a lifetime opening those veils to expose our true essence. That to me is what God is. So it's not out there, it's within us. And so when I started to consider the possibility of, of prayer, happened, um, I was actually working at Children of the Night, which is a, um, a shelter in Van Nuys that houses and educates uh, children who have been trafficked. And I had a really hard time in that experience because of my own trauma. And I was very um, naive, very idealistic, arrogant, going into that environment, having not really checked my own trauma, thinking I could fix something that I really didn't understand. And those kids made my life at first like just hell. They just, you know how, it, you know, 
kids in general are hard. Um, but then when you're dealing with severely traumatized children who were not interested in, you know, breathing or closing their eyes um, for obvious reasons that I didn't understand at the time. Uh, my therapist at the time, a woman named Mona who, who died, uh, she kept saying to me, you need to pray for the kids. You need to pray for those kids. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, what am I going to pray for? And it happened on my yoga mat, not here, but I'm gesturing to my yoga mat behind me. Um, it's the only thing I had was my body. It was this thing that I did that connected me to something bigger within myself that gave me a sense of peace and integration and non-judgment. And so the first time I really prayed, I decided that like touch, it has a resonance and energy. So if I put my hands on you in a touch that's aggressive, uh, you're going to feel it. If I put my hands on you in a way that's sensual or sexual, you're, you're going to pick up the vibe. Um, or if I put my hand on you in kindness, compassion, it's all vibe. It's all an energy. And I thought, okay, energy isn't just connected to touch. It's in our thoughts. It's in our words. Everything has a vibration. So I wonder if when I'm moving, if I can connect my heart to the hearts of the children and just send them my love, just send them my goodwill and ask of myself, not to this external thing. I asked for clarity. I asked for strength to perceive the experience differently. I asked to get out of my own way. I asked for the, um, for the capability to meet these young people where they're at. I asked, may their lives be happy. May they get the resources they need. May they be supported and loved and valued. May they discover that within themselves. And then I let my body pray. I just practiced yoga, but I did it with reverence. The way I placed my hands, the way I placed my feet, how I moved in and out of the pose, it felt like it was being done with such respect for myself, for this living prayer, and to those children. I don't know if those children changed, but I changed. And when I walked in to serve those kids, I was different. And as a result of that, their experience changed. And so when I pray, I don't pray to say like when my dad was dying of cancer, like, you know, please God, take my dad's cancer away. I'm a, a, a humanist and a real, realist enough to know um, it doesn't really work that way. But I always pray for the strength to perceive the experience differently. I pray to be able to meet my father where he's at and to show up in love and to be able to serve him in what he needs in that moment. I pray that he finds the grace within himself to move into acceptance, to move into a space of healing. Um, so I don't, I don't, I'm not a magical thinking kind of person where I go into prayer where it's like, you know, okay, God, you know, take away my bad shoulder. I say, like, dear spirit, give me the awareness to end the behaviors that keep putting me in a position to hurt my shoulder. You know, so it's these reminders to myself and speaking to the highest place within myself and sending goodwill and energy towards someone who might need it. Again, it's a vibration. So if I want to pray for someone who's healing, Dear spirits, surround this person with love and light. May they remember who they truly are and that this aspect in time does not define them. May they learn from their illness. May they learn from their depression. May they transcend it. Transcend it. And 
in that transcendence, may they become more strong and more self-realized so that they may serve the world, not in spite of their experience, but because of it. This is how I pray. Um, and so perhaps it's a little different than I'm not invoking you know, Jesus Christ, but I'm invoking the Jesus Christ that's within myself, Christ consciousness, which is a real living thing. Um, yeah, I'm good for all of it. As long as I recognize it's not independent of me and I am invoking that highest aspect to help me to move through this world with more awareness. So I will often send energy out into the world because I want to contribute to a higher vibration, not a lower vibration. So even when I teach yoga, like I, I swear nonstop, you know, when we're talking like one-on-one, -on -one. but when I'm teaching yoga and people will dispute this all the time, but I know it's true. The moment the container opens, it is a living prayer. The resonance is high and people are going to feel that. I don't want to use any word in that space that's of a low vibration. I'm not going to say fuck. I'm not going to tell a student even jokingly, oh, shut up. Um, that's not the vibration. I'm going to keep my words. I'm going to use the word let. I'm going to use the word allow. These are magical words that have a high vibration and I know that that's the energy I want to send out into the world. So it mingles with all the other high vibrations rather than contribute to the low vibrations, which I do think are, is impactful. We feel it the same way you feel that touch. We feel that energy. So I don't know if I answered the question, but I am a big prayer. It reminds me of what I already know to be true. It, it helps me to align with source. Um, and it makes me feel as if I'm contributing in a way that's positive. And I hope it lands on somebody's soul. But like I said, ultimately that's between each person and their own God. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. I guess I want to dig, dig a little deeper and ask you in your own life, how do you make sense of the suffering in the world? I, I don't, I don't. But what I do is try not to contribute to that suffering. All I can do is watch my side of the street and like I might not be contributing to the suffering in a big way. Like I'm not out there uh, wrecking havoc. But am I talking shit about someone? Am I like just doing things? Am I bitching at my partner? These are all micro but significant ways in which we contribute to separation, contribute to suffering. I want to hold myself accountable for that. I want to live in truth. I want to live in love. I want to be compassionate, empathetic. It sensitizes me to understand why people do what they do, why they're suffering. Trust me, if I didn't have the tools that I have today, after all these years of doing yoga, I would be drinking, I would be doing drugs, I would be potentially participating in domestic violence. There's all sorts of things that I could be capable of. When you have trauma that's unreconciled and there's no place to put the rage and the fear and most importantly, the unresolved and unacknowledged grief. When I look at the world in all of its suffering, I look at a world in deep trauma that has no tools for healing or reconciliation that has internalized their deep, deep pain and are acting out just to rinse the energy, just to rinse it. 
You know how it is when you're pissed at someone and you're just like, oh, go fuck yourself. For one split second, it feels good. You're, you're releasing that animal energy out. Go fuck yourself. But you're only creating more separation. It's just a band-aid on your own energetic wound. In the work I do, I say that, fuck you. But in the privacy of my mat, I, I write fuck you letters. I write, when I look at you, I see and feel. And I say all the ugly. I get the most unspiritual projections and judgments out of my body because it's just energy and it's better out than in. And I get, I write, I'm angry because I'm afraid because until I can get to, I'm sad because. And when I get to, I'm sad and I let the vulnerability out, that vulnerability is what leads to surrender and to compassion, to empathy, to humanity. So when I look at the world, it's just It is children acting out and not knowing what to do with their big feelings. And so they are fuck youing all over the place to the detriment of our entire society. And so I don't know how to end that suffering, but I do know that I have to be willing to look at the ways that I am complicit to that suffering each and every day, whether it's in my racism, my sexism, my homophobia, my transphobia, my ageism, my ableism, and all the ways in which I, um, I create that, that, that division, that separation. I can't change what I won't see. So I have to see it within myself. And my hope is that then by living as an example and by supporting others in finding and utilizing these tools and then breaching the systems that exist that contribute to this, uh, that's this suffering, that benefit from this suffering, that uh, make money off of this suffering. Uh, the systems are simply made up of people. Change the people, you change the system. So I think I'm in the business of changing the people, starting with myself. And that feels like the right pathway to end suffering. And helping people to not be afraid to look at their own culpability. Uh, this idea like they got to stop it, you know, pointing their finger outward and saying, you know, they got to be different. It's like, mm, yes, definitely. And which pieces of this do you also contribute? Why would you expect them to be different if you in your own little small life can't alter your own behaviors and um, contribute to being more mindful and more at ease in your own life? So I, that's the only answer that I have to that. And of course, as someone who is deeply committed to social justice and activism, it can't stay on the yoga mat. I've got to get out and affect that change in whatever ways that I can by supporting and aligning myself with organizations that are doing the on the ground work to create change and raising money for them, working for them and whatever, uplifting them, whatever it is. But to make it proactive is also to me equally as important as doing your own deep inner work. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Oh my God. I feel like just keep talking. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. This is so good. Okay. I appreciate that. Wow. Like, no, Trust me, I appreciate that. And I know the listener, I know the spiritually sassy community is going to be gagging over <laughs> this because it was like, whoa, yeah, I, you, were, you were channeling. 
And you know, I, the 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 thing that I want to offer to this space as well, and how do I make sense of the suffering working in a hospital, working in a homeless shelter, doing this kind of work with all in and Sean does in such massive capacities with all walks of life. What has helped me is this paradox of seeing that there is all this pain happening in one aspect of reality and then also knowing that there is one aspect of of the of reality there's one part of them that's always at peace that is all knowing all wise that's relaxed that's all loving so doing this kind of like process of like being deeply here with the human body with the human emotions with the human suffering and pain and disease and then also you know dabbling and like going back and forth inside of myself to remember there's a part of them that is at ease can i tickle that part can i connect with that part can i bring that part forth with my presence can i be so regulated so relaxed in my being that they that that part that's relaxed and chill inside of me can call forth that part in them and then maybe just maybe the relationship that they have with their pain won't lead to more suffering but will will be a, a catalyst to moments of grace where where you know where there is these moments of opening where it's like a hospital a, a traumatizing um diagnosis could lead to a big awakening you know yep yep absolutely mm. you know i remember when my dad was dying of of cancer of kidney cancer my dad was a yoga teacher also, and so we talked about this kind of stuff a lot. Um, you know, we, I was saying to him, like, we have to find out what's going on with your, your second and third chakra to understand, like, out of all the diseases that you could have, you know, your body could have manifested, why kidney cancer? Well, you know, I wanted it to connect it back. And my father was very, very pragmatic. And uh, he said a couple of things. One was that he told me life just is. Sometimes life just is. You cannot change life, but you can change your perspective. And he said, sometimes people will just die. And sometimes your hearts get broken. And that's just the way that it is. That's how it goes down. It sucks, but you can't change what is. But you can change the way that you see it. So my dad told me that when he was investigating his chakras and trying to figure out, you know, why kidney cancer, like what did it represent metaphorically, he didn't relate to it, but he did tell me that for him, kidney cancer was an answer to a prayer, going back to prayer. He said that when, before he had gotten diagnosed, that he used to reflect a lot about his, the way he was as a parent. My parents were very young when they had us. It was a a shit show of, you know, it was, it was a wonderful childhood, but it was a free-for-all. That's a better word of kind of a free-for-all. And my dad said that he regretted some of the ways that he parented and that he felt like he had checked out and that he used to really pray that he would, that before he dies, and again, this is pre-cancer, before he dies, that he wanted to be the kind of father that he always dreamed about, the kind of father that he could be proud of, the kind of father that really shows up for your kids and he said to me that it took cancer for him to become that father. And that in many ways, cancer was the answer to his prayers. Even though it was a fucked up answer and he wouldn't have wished that, nonetheless, 
cancer is what gave him the, the, the time and the willingness to show up in his parenting, even though it was late in the day, in a very different way, and that he was able to die at peace, knowing that that was the gift of his cancer. And so, you know, again, when you talk about prayer, when we talk about suffering, there are all so many different ways in which we can perceive it. And so sometimes life just is, and you can't change what is, but you can change your own perspective. Sometimes it's just the luck of the fucking draw. And sometimes it's a gift that gives you an opportunity to reflect on the choices that you've made and make different choices without having any attachment to an end result. Even though my father got this realization, he still dropped dead. It didn't protect him from dying, but he did die with a little bit in his heart of like, okay, okay, I, I walked away. I took something from this. I didn't let this moment go to waste. And so these are some of the lessons that I've, I've learned. And I hope that your community like recognizes this. It's, I'm, I don't come from the spiritual background of like spiritual bypass. I'm not woo-woo in that way. I am and I'm not. I'm very pra practical, pragmatic. Um, uh, you know, like I said, I come from that thought of life just is what it is. And I'm also committed to trying to make sense of the incomprehensible, to giving meaning when there seems to be none, to allowing myself to be empowered, not in spite of whatever's going on, but because of it. And moving through this world, not being afraid of the ebb and flows of life because that's just the way it's going to go down. There's no guarantee for any of us, but I don't want it to take away my joy. I don't want it to take away my hope or my sense of appreciation or my sense of gratitude for all the gifts that were given. And so I'm hoping, you know, my guess is that many of your listeners, if they're sassy, I hope they're wild. I hope they're making all the mistakes. I hope they're they're, they're doing all the things that you get to do in a lifetime. You're, you're, you're kissing, you're sucking, you're fucking, you're living, you're loving. Um, and with each experience, you're learning. And with each opportunity, you do it with more elegance, with more awareness, with more tenderness, with more appreciation. And so all of those moments inform the next until you're spiritually mature and you look around the world and you're able to say, this is hard, but thank God I get to be a part of this. And I'm going to show up with an open heart and an open mind. And I'm going to mirror back what love looks like. And I'm going to be that love and serve from that love and show up from that love. And I'm not going to apologize for any aspect of my beingness. Instead, I'm going to bring in the whole of who we are and let that be the thing that radiates out to the world. You know, that club kid that I was in 1984, she's still in me. I, I have a wild heart. I'm still a voyeur. I'm still curious. Um, all the different parts of me, I, I carry with me and I hold them in my heart because they were a stepping stone to self-realization. And I'm grateful. And I hope that everyone who's listening forgives themselves for thinking that they should have known better. Forgive others for thinking that they should have known better. All of us, as Billy told me, are doing the best they can with what little they know based on their own trauma and the lack of tools that they have available. And all we can really do is stay on our side of the street and love bigger than we ever imagined possible.
And I think that if all of us can do that in some way, then love is the inevitable outcome. Peace is the inevitable outcome. And that to me is the work of a true yogi. It's not to apologize for our humanity, it's to integrate it. That's what yoga is about, wholeness, union. And so we can't take the parts of us that we don't like and then push them away, shame them. We, gotta, we can't let them run the show either, but we gotta bring them with us. And look at the world and realize that there is deep core trauma that hasn't been reconciled in every single culture here in the United States, throughout Africa, throughout the Middle East, certainly, everywhere. And until we're understanding the impact of that trauma, we're just going to create that cycle of, um, of oppression and dominance. It's just going to keep cycling because you don't know what to do with the hate. You don't know what to do with the rage. Um, so thankfully, there are programs like this. There's yoga teachers everywhere. They're in hot yoga. They're in Ashtanga. They're Iyengar, Vini Yoga. They're meditating. They're praying at mosques. They're everywhere. I want to be a part of that conversation. I want to be a part of that community. The people who are doing the deep transformational inner work, confronting their own limiting beliefs so that they can show up in the world the highest aspects of who they are, which is love. I mean, <laughs> shit. I mean, honey. Oh, wow. My producer is going to hate that I scream this loud, but it was necessary. It was awesome. necessary, Mark. Thank you. Oh, okay. I have just like two more things I need to hear from you. Anything. Forgiveness, grief. Yeah. These are the things that were coming up that I want to hear Sean Korn speak about. Oh. And then the last thing, I'm just going to put all of it. I'm just going to tell you three topics that I want to hear. And then you pick because then we wrap it up. Yeah. Forgiveness, grief, and community care or self-care into community care. Yeah. And why sometimes there is this like lack of direct relationship i say to the teachers who are training in the somatic activated healing method that what we're doing is training in in social activism social justice yeah. it's mystical training for how to care for the community how yes. to get out of your own way and help the world yeah. and i students come up with like a, and and don't get me wrong the listener right now, if you are in a fragile state, this is going to be edgy for the ear, but listen with the heart. When someone comes up to me with like a personal drama and they're like, oh, this is happening, they're moping around, I, the first question, first question I ask them is, when was the last time you served a meal? Mm -hmm. Oh, I haven't, I haven't been of service in months or years. Okay, so start there. Get out yeah. of your own way. Get out of your own way. Go put on a, a all black outfit. Take off your fancy jewelry. Don't drive your your boyfriend's fancy car. Take off the nail polish. Put the hair in a bun. Go. Go to the shelter. Mm -hmm. Go to the corner. Make a sandwich. Go serve a meal. Once you've served that meal, then come back and ask me that same question. See if you even have that question. See if yeah. you even have the same problem. Okay. Now I took over. Those are the three topics. I just wanted to <laughs> offer that little bit. Well, we'll start with forgiveness. Well, we'll start with grief. You know, that's a subject you and I share, you know, and I, I of course, I understand that you're, you're in, the, you're in the, the heart of it still. And it's complex. It's weird. No one could have prepared me for how weird grief was. The, the waves, the, the, 
it, it's really true when someone would say, I know how you feel, I would think, you can't because this is weird. I can't even describe this. I'm fine that I'm not fine. And the missing, the longing, the, all of it, it's a very intense experience having lost the father, and I know you're holding that space, having lost a mom, and it's a rough ride. What I will tell you is, and again, I go back to my dad, uh, a story, something that happened between my dad and I, right before he died, uh, he had said to me, we were laying in bed watching TV, my mom, my dad, and I, and my father looks over to my mom and says, Alice, get out of the room. I want to talk to my daughter. And my mother looks at my father and the, I see a look pass between them, but I don't know what it is, but something just passed. And my mom gets up, turns off the TV, leaves the room. And my father pulls me to him and has me lay my head on his chest. My dad was, you know, I don't, he, I was afraid to put my weight on him. Like I would break his ribs. And I'm listening to his heartbeat and I'm thinking to myself, I wonder how many beats are left. Is it a thousand beats, you know, 10? And my father starts saying, I love you, I love you. And uh, starts to tell me how amazing I am. And it took me a moment, but I realized he was saying goodbye. And I thought, oh no, no, I am not ready for this. And I dissociate, I completely leave my body. And I remember thinking to myself, Sean, this happens once in a lifetime. Get back in your body, hear what he needs to say, be present. So I get back into my body and then my, I hear my father like talking about some regrets, gone. You know, I get back into my body again. I hear my dad talking something about, you know, forgiveness, gone. And when it was over, I heard nothing of that conversation, very, very little. And I like crawled out of the room. He said, now get out of here and get me a Coke. And I crawled out of the room. I went to sleep and uh, I was wrecked. A week later, I'm laying in bed with my mom and my dad. My dad turns to my mom and said, Alice, get out of the room. I want to talk to my, do my daughter. I look at my mom. She looks kind of curiously at me and at my dad. She gets up, turns off the TV. He pulls me into his chest and he starts doing the same thing all over again. My baby, my baby, I love you, you're... And I was like, what the fuck? We did this. And I dissociate. And I thought to myself, like, okay, maybe it's the drugs. Maybe he forgot we had this conversation. Be kind, be present, get back in your body. But the same thing kept happening. I kept disappearing, coming back in. But maybe I heard 30% of that conversation. At the end of it, he says, no get out of the room. He, want, he said, go get me a Coke. And uh, I went downstairs, got him his Coke, and then, you know, went away. Nine times this happened, nine times before my father died, he would do the same exact thing. But by the ninth time, I heard every single word. I was able to be so present to my father. We were able to talk about what he wanted for his funeral, the words that he wanted me to speak, to, to messages he wanted me to give other people, the music he wanted me to play, including Highway to Hell and Another One Bites the Dust. And it was this really meaningful conversation where I was able to receive his, uh, his requests. I he was able to ask for forgiveness. I was able to ask for forgiveness. We were crying. And I left the room. He says, now go get me a Coke. I left the room, I go downstairs, and I said to my mother, if my father says goodbye to me one more fucking time, I'm gonna kill him. And 
what happened is, what I realized later, my father knew that I was internalizing so much of my deep, deep grief that I was showing up and I was meeting the moment. I was calling up the highest part of Sean, but I was denying the little girl that did not want my dad to die, did not want any of this to happen, that never wanted to hear this word. And I was internalizing that part of my grief and instead being like, I got this dad, I'm gonna meet you, I'm gonna carry your soul out the way you carried my soul in. My father was smart enough to realize my daughter is completely shut down. And if she doesn't start to communicate, to talk about it, to normalize the process of dying and death, then she, he knew I would have a harder time later in my grief. It was one of the greatest gifts that my dad ever gave me was by forcing me to have to talk because that's what he was doing every single time. And it helped my nervous system acclimate and it helped me to say the things my little girl wanted to say. Like, daddy, I'm gonna miss you with everything in my body. There's not a day that will go by that I won't feel you within me. These were the things that I needed to say, but I didn't want to, because I didn't want him to be upset. So when, I, when he died, his other request for me was to teach a workshop called Yoga for a Broken Heart. And he wanted me to do it right after he died, like within a month which is a fucked up request, but I understood. He wanted me to talk, to share it, to communicate, and to get others to um, resonate on a heart level. That grief can look like your cat dying. It can look like your kid going to school. It can look like losing a job. It can most certainly look like uh, heartbreak, betrayal, and a dad or mom dying. And one of the most significant moments happened was right before my dad died, while we were in the hospital, the realization of how soon this death was coming up onto me was in me. And I left the room to cry quietly to myself in the green room, like an area where you know all the family can go, but there was no one in there. So I was crying. And a little girl comes into the room. Her mother also had kidney cancer and she was in the next room from my father. And I would see this family all the time. And the girl was maybe 12 years old. And she comes into the room. And as soon as I see her, I stop crying because I don't want her, I don't want to upset her. I don't want to give, I don't want to not give her hope. She doesn't say a word to me, but she crosses over and sits right next to me. It's a big room. There's chairs everywhere. This kid sits right next to me. And she reaches in and she holds my hand. And I can get emotional thinking about this because that was not a 12-year-old kid. That was an, an angel because... She held my hand and she stared at the floor and said, it's not that it gets easier, but it gets different. And to me, that was grief. It never got easier, but it gets different. And with each holiday, with each new experience, which I'm sure you're still in the, that first year of all those moments, after that first year, it's still, I still miss my father with everything that I am, but it's different and I feel him differently and I grieve differently um, and I celebrate him differently. Um, but grief has its own timeline and it can never be rushed because it's, the, it's all the little beings in you that are grieving simultaneous to your adult self. And we wanna give all of those different aspects time to mourn um, and 
I take all of them out and let them have space to miss their daddy um, in the way that I, the adult me, misses my dad. So that's a little fleck of, of grief. And I think the most important thing is to do it your own unique way. If you want to talk about it, you talk about it. If you want to put your head under the covers, you put your head under the covers. But we need to normalize it. It's why I love that you're a chaplain and that you're working in these environments and that you're bearing witness and holding space for people in the most tender, vulnerable, and intimate moment in their lives where you have no idea what's on the other side and you're walking them right to the edge of it. And you're not saying, oh, here's what's on the other side because you don't fucking know. But you're saying like, I witness you and I love you and I'm holding the space with you. I think it's one of, I don't know if I can do it, but I do think that and being like a um, hospice uh, doula are some of the most noblest, deepest service that we can do um, to help guide people to the other side with a lot of love and a lot of light and compassion. So that's my, my take on the process of grief, not grief itself, but the process. Um, forgiveness is a tricky one, but it's also when you see a bigger, you okay? I don't have my glasses yeah. on. I can't see. I want to make no, sure. No, I've okay. just been wailing up. Yes, I am definitely mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Um, thank I know you for that saying all that. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I know I'm that you're in I'm definitely in the thick it. of it. Yeah, I'm definitely in the thick of it. And, mm -hmm. and hearing you talk about all those moments and um, yeah, I didn't have to have, I didn't, I didn't get the chance to have that conversation with my mom. Yeah. And some of those decisions were not made with me and my sister in mind because we were in Nepal and in Indonesia in silence in a monastery. Mm. And mm. Um, my father and my brother had to make those decisions, you know. So I'm just, I just, you know, there's, there's a yeah. lot to be said about the fact that I didn't uh, participate. I didn't get to have that conversation. However, my mom did remind me every single day of the love she had for me. Yeah. You know, and that was yeah. just so special. It was, mm -hmm. it was almost like she would say goodbye every day. Yeah. You know, the way your dad did those nine times. Um, in her own way, she would say goodbye. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, my, I wasn't with my dad when he died. I wanted to be. I, it, I was supposed to come home 24 hours after my dad had uh, died. That was when I was supposed to fly home. And I often believe that my father, I don't know if my father would have let go had I been in the room. I'm not sure he would have been able to. And I often, I, I wonder if your mom had that same insight, if you and your sister were present, if she would have, her soul would have been able to leave the space. Yeah. And, and so it's a, that's a grace that she, even though it's so hard, it's probably what she needed in the same way my dad needed to be with my mother and my mother only. Um, I wanted to be there. You know, and I didn't get that gift. Um, but I know, I spoke with you, you know, prior. Mm -hmm. I know the love and the commitment and the connection. And I have no doubt, I don't know about now, but like, I feel my father in some ways more now than I did when he was alive. I feel him in the way I walk. I feel him every once in a while when I laugh. I hear my father's laugh. I didn't hear that before. I, there are certain behaviors that I have where I'm like, that's my dad living 
right now in my skin. And so I take my dad out to lunch, literally, on his birthday and on his death day. I go get a sandwich and I go to the park and I sit under a tree, I take my dad to lunch, and I say out loud, I tell him all about the year. And my dad loved yoga gossip. He loved to hear who was screwing who and who was, what, what, all the things that we're up to. I tell my dad all the gossip. I fill him in on all the stuff. Um, I, I fill him in on like just the weird shit that's going on in the world. And I talk out loud. And I put half the sandwich on my father's side. And I have lunch with him. And when I'm done, I take the sandwich and I bury it as just like, you know, part of the ritual. And I do this twice a year because I know for whatever reason, I know that my father's consciousness is still very much present and that he would enjoy these moments of connection. And so I don't know if that'll be your experience going forward, but perhaps maybe on your mom's birthday or death day, you take her out to lunch and have a heart to heart conversation and see what comes through. It's hard though. My, also yeah. my prayer for you and for everyone who's listening, who has been in this experience, who didn't get to be with their parent or, or anybody, and it feels any sense of, um, I don't know what's going on within your consciousness, but we all have to forgive ourselves 100% for all the ways in which it went down so that we can move forward and get to the other side. It's an energy that doesn't serve you. It doesn't serve anybody. It's caustic and it withholds. And it, it is what it is, as my older brother loves to say. It is what it is. And he's right about that. You can't change it. But you can also recognize that there was a reason that you needed to be in that monastery at that time. There was a reason your sister needed to be there. And there was a reason why your father and brother were in charge of some of the other practicalities and decision-making. And let it go. Forgive yourself. Move on. And again, I don't know if that's your reality. But for anyone who's carrying any kind of like a heaviness around those final moments, I think that that's key. We have to forgive ourselves for thinking it should have been different um, because it doesn't serve the progression uh, of our own, you know, our, uh, of the development of our own soul. Mm-hmm. Thank you I so much for I did have one your... hour with my mom. Yeah, thank you, Sean. Thank you. Like you've just, you know, God, I knew I, I wanted to have this conversation with you for so long and I'm so glad it happened when it happened. I just mm-hmm. want to name this. Um, I did have one hour with my mom. Me and my sister were able to meet at the airport and then my dad's friend did this really kind gesture and hired a private jet so we can arrive at the hospital um, at a specific time, not wait for the for the flight and the layover and all that. So we 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 were able to be with mom for one hour before she died. The oh. the the heaviness of it is just like all the choices that they made before, and the fact that they, in their own way, they didn't communicate. I don't think they knew, actually, as I'm saying it, as I bring a heart of forgiveness and a lens of forgiveness into the process, not a lens of rigidity. I don't think they knew the severity of the situation. Yeah. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think they knew that mom was dying within a few days, you know. No. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So. It's really hard. Have you spoken to your family about about this? Yeah. yeah. At length. Oh, yeah. well, that's. And. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. stuff comes up, you know, and like sometimes I just like we we speak enough about it, and then I just I I, I don't put a period on, I put it like a comma or 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 three little dots to be continued, yeah, and because uh, it's so heavy, like every time I hear the story, I hear something new. Yeah. You know, I hear another layer of the process that they were kind of holding back from saying, you know, part of me wishes that they had been honest when when she first went into a hospital for pneumonia, which it wasn't. It was a symptom of the radiation of the brain mm-hmm. tumor. Anyways, not to go down that rabbit hole right now. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, there's like so many things that were left unsaid out of protection. And, you know, as we're opening this up, as people are dying and family members of the listener is dying, I think it's as Sean was saying, forgive yourself. And, and as your dad so beautifully did too. Um, and, and my family did to to specific degrees that were deeply meaningful but have the honest conversation be brutally honest that death is is inevitable and yeah you know um, but everybody it fucking sucks it sucks everybody approaches it in a very very different way they really really do and you have to give space for everyone when my dad died i came home and my um i was in the room with my mother and my older brother who I mentioned earlier, you know, he's very conservative and you know, now he's the patriarch in the family. He's, he's wonderful, he's lovely, but he's not very emotional. And he comes up and he says, I just want you to know that if anybody needs a hug, I am available to do that. And we burst out laughing, it was so funny. I thought, is, did he practice that the whole way uh, in his car? But then he said to me, he pulled me aside and he was like, look at... Um, I'm concerned that when you are giving the eulogy that you're going to cry and get really emotional and it's going to upset my children. And he goes, I'd really prefer if you could, you know, not cry. And I said, I intend to have an appropriate response to the death of my father. And if that includes hurtling myself into his casket, I'm going to reserve the right to whatever it is that I need to do for myself. And... I, you know, I could tell he was disappointed by that, but cut to when my, fa- my, my brother was making his eulogy, I assumed he would go up there, you know, read it out and be very stone-faced. The moment he opened his mouth, tears poured out of my brother. I had never seen him weep so openly, so vulnerably. I don't even know if he was aware of it because it was just so unabashed and the most beautiful thing I think I'd ever seen. And again, it reminded me that death is weird. It's hard on everybody. It's unpredictable. And everyone's going to do all of it in their own really unique way, in their own unique way. And that taught me a lot because he had an idea about how he was going to be. And his body showed him something very, very different. And so in my heart, I wanted just to leave space for that for him, for all of us. Because as you're showing, it's complex. Families are complex. The emotions are complex. The decision-making is complex. Your father's got his, his, dealing with his own trauma and loss. Your brother, his own trauma and loss. Like my brother. Like my mother. And everyone is just trying to figure out this thing. Managing their own emotions. Um, it's horrifying and it's utterly beautiful. And one day, years and years from now, I'm sure you'll be able to look at it through a different lens and see that 
everyone tried their best, you know, in that moment. And everyone was in deep pain in that moment. And they wanted the best for your mom. And I hope everyone that's listening to this it, it understands the complexities of it. And of course, it's different for everyone. Um, so yeah, I appreciate being able to go down this. Con this, is a, this is a very raw conversation because it is so intimate and it is so unique. And especially when you're in grief, it's hard because you're, you're, you're in it. You know, all you can mm -hmm. see is the parameters mm -hmm. of that grief. And it's an important mm -hmm. part of it. You don't want to be standing mm -hmm. on the other side yet because you're going to miss so much when you're in the, mm -hmm. that, that tunnel. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I was never that first year, never more vulnerable. I could cry on a split dime, like, it, like in a, a moment, I'd be fine. Someone say one word and I couldn't hide it. And it tapped into a part of me. I can be a little harder. I can be a little more guarded. There was no guard. It was all gone. And I remember when I started to heal, the guard came back up. Same with a breakup. My first like real big breakup, heartbreak. I was an open, my, I, I just, you, you touch me and I'm going to be in a ball crying. You ask me how I'm doing. It's like, you really want to know? Take me out to lunch. I'll tell you everything. And then after about a year, same thing. I could feel the walls go up again. And I was like, oh, I'll never be that raw again. Not like that. I'll miss that. I'm glad I'm moving on, but I'll miss that vulnerability, that, that openness. And that's what grief and heartbreak does. And it, that's what it allows. So thank you for letting me have this conversation with you. I appreciate it. Honey, thank you. Thank you so, so much. And. I didn't get a chance to say any words at my mom's funeral. I was just sobbing the entire mm -hmm. time. Then you spoke Literally. volumes. Yeah, I guess I did. Um, yeah, you did. Yeah. yeah. You did. You spoke I'm going volumes. back in December and the day of her uh, first year, you know, the... The, mm -hmm. the, her death anniversary, yeah. um, and I'm we're gonna we're gonna do a whole memorial where I want people to speak. I want to speak. I want to share photos, share stories, do a whole thing. Yeah, um, yeah, do a whole thing. And for her birthday, I did buy her um, us a chocolate cake, which she really liked. I I lit up enough candles that they had at the store, <laughs> and I played her favorite song, and I just cried my eyes out yeah. and I connected with her energy and I just sat with a with a, a portrait of her in, mm -hmm. in front of me as if we were having chocolate cake together so you did you're doing you took your mom out just like I, I, I took get it my mom out yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and I still yeah, every once in a while I'll, I'll go to a movie like I know my dad would love I might not be into it but I'll be like daddy this one's for you because I know how much he'll enjoy it and I see it through his eyes I watch it knowing the parts that would crack him up or that he would get excited by. And so again, it makes me, you know, I carry, with, I carry him with me as I know you'll carry your mom. And, and everyone is listening that those that you have loved and lost, the ways that you'll carry them forevermore. It's what we get to do. Yeah, thank you. Mm. This has been like enormous, big, mm. expensive, delicious in all the ways. Thank you. <laughs> You're so welcome. So much. Wow. Yeah. Wow, 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 wow. And the only well, final... We need to have a point too, though. We need to have another... Oh, Absolutely. do you want to go into that for a second? Well, I would just say briefly, let me close it and I won't go yeah. into it. This will be like the um, precursor okay. to the next part of it, which okay, is... Good. To your point, 
in my head, and again, it went, my practice was physical, then it was emotional, then it was spiritual. It had like these beats. And once it got spiritual, there was a moment where it was like, now what? Where for years, my practice was all about me, my body, my emotions, my connection with God. And then something shifted and it became about the we. There was no me without the we. It was all of a sudden this realization like, holy fuck, our liberation is bound for God's sakes. I can't be free unless we're all free. I have to serve. I have to be a part of the healing of our culture in whatever way I can. Otherwise, I'm part of the problem. I'm complicit to this problem. And it was an inevitable next step within my yoga practice. And what I discovered, this is not true for everybody, but it was true for me, my pain was my purpose. The very thing that got me on my yoga mat was the very place in which I was skilled to serve, skilled because of my own lived experience and because of the tools I had for self-regulation. I was able to walk into environments where there was, where there was trauma and be able to hold space without it becoming about me. And then able to process my feelings later, be able to do the work and able through my own experience, just through my, my, my humanity, be in service to a community that could relate to me in the way that I could relate to them. And then it evolved from there and eventually went on to co-found Off the Mat into the world and commit my efforts to using my platform in the way of helping people bridge that gap between yoga, transformational inner work, social justice, and transformative change. But I really do believe if you do this work long enough, the inevitable step is to, um, is to act, is to engage, and to serve in the ways that you're choosing to do at this time. It is no surprise to me that you're holding space for people at the end of their life. It's like, you, you will heal. And that's what I tell everybody who wants to get into service. You think it's about them? I healed. Mm -hmm. Every single time mm -hmm. I do it, I heal. And I know the growth that you're going to get by being a chaplain, by showing up in these environments, it'll impact every aspect of your life. And so, and again, you know, it, it took me years before I came to that understanding. Uh, you know, I, I, I do hold space for people to, you know, do their work. So they're not bringing their wounds into the space the way I did when I first started. Um, but if someone is still going on and on about their story and still attached to that story and it's 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, it's that point where I would have to say, go serve, go do something, get out of your own way already. Look at the bigger spiritual picture of why things have happened as they have and turn everything like pay back. You know, that's what it means. You get, you get the gift of this yoga practice, then you have to give back in some capacity. And so it's a longer conversation and one I would love to have because there's, there's pathways, there's steps, there's, practic there's practices that can help people to find their purpose and to um, do so without causing more harm. And that's key. Okay, I'm definitely ending this and messaging Kim to schedule <laughs> to get in touch with your people so we can like get into this in, for the next year. 
right away because like that is so beautiful thank you what wow. a delicious i'm i'm like baffled i mean i've oh. always loved you and <laughs> it's like amazing to just like sit and have an honest conversation together well thank i you. look i look forward to when i get to see you one-on-one -on -one in person and we can like really break down the tea get totally in there and just connect on that level it would be really enjoyable for me it would be uh like truly it would bring so much happiness to my heart especially since you're like probably five minutes away from my house right now <laughs> so let's about, make that happen about six yes yeah. exactly okay i love you very much sean thank you for um, coming on i love you so much and everybody god bless you all be well stay safe stay happy keep doing your yoga practice stay sassy forgive always love big serve all and like, that's the last words of my dad said to me, not the last words he said, but I write it in the book. He says, um, uh, do good, love big, forgive always, and don't be an asshole. And so those are my final words to you. Those were some of my final words from my dad. I mean, can we really talk about the fact that this episode was like, excuse me, what just happened? Anyways, I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I did recording it and having this deep, intimate, present conversation with, with Sean for you. And if you've loved the episode and you're loving the podcast, don't forget to leave us a review, darling. And if you leave us a review, I have a gift for you. Head out to the head out, no, head to the show notes and find out all the details about how you can get my free guide to help you and imposter syndrome. I love you very much. Take good care. See you soon. Okay, I'm calling on all the home bar enthusiasts right now. Are you ready to create a new kind of bar experience? One that's sober and filled with magic? Let's create a bar that goes beyond the ordinary, honey. And let's infuse it with the spirit of adventure, wellness, and connection. And listen, with that in mind, I need to share with you Anima Mundi's Apothecary and their wonderful brand new Elixir collection. When I saw that, I was like, honey, we got to share this with the community immediately. Even if you're not interested in becoming fully sober, you're sober curious, you just want to, you know, kind of Try something different that's still going to make you feel good and sassy and delicious and be like, ooh, I like this. Then this is for you. One of their elixirs that I adore, it's the Euphoria. It's composed of organic, wild-crafted, and ethically grown botanicals. It's like a, a potion for joy. And trust me when I tell you this, honey, for those of us who are on a sober journey, or if you are on a sober, curious journey, you're going to drink this, honey, and you're going to be like, ooh girl what's in this shit but hey honey it's just a bunch of amazing organically grown botanicals mixed together to give you that Ooh, i like this feeling you know what i mean and they have this elixir kit barista series it is gorgeous iconic legendary buy it for your house or also buy it for a friend that gotta be a sweet friend honey because that that's gonna require your a little bit more of an investment you could also just get each of the elixirs by themselves right and it's an invitation for you to become a spiritual mocktail barista in the comfort of your own home you know trust me you're gonna love it your body is definitely gonna love it your mind would thank you and your soul will be like okay honey 
Okay, lit. Listen, and I guarantee you that people that try these elixirs are going to be like, oh, what's going on, honey, over here? I mean, you got to find a recipe that works, but this is the base of it. It's delicious, amazing, and it's going to get you lit. Are you ready to unlock the magic of this elixir collection, honey? Head over to animamundiherbals.com. I'm going to try to spell that for you. A-N-I-M-A-M-U-N-D-I-herbals.com. Herbals is spelled H-E-R-B-A-L-S.com. Or instead of you listening to spell this, you know, trying to pass the spelling bee over here, go to the link in the show notes. And listen, don't forget to use code capital S-A-H, number one and number five, SA15, at checkout for an exclusive 15% off your order. Okay, bless Bless all this beautiful, sober, spiritual bar experiences that you're about to create. Love you.